Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. This is a place where we discuss all things change. Well, we are here. The penultimate episode of Series 2 of Changes with me, Annie McManus. It's a really big deal to be reaching the end of this series. It's been such an incredible journey. Uh a kind of real mixed bag of people and conversations but always with the thread of change running through them all uh, we kicked off with Zadie Smith covering lockdown we've had lottery winners we've discussed our planet and our oceans we've discussed far-right extremism and so much more Today, we are looking at mental health and my guest, Denise, is going to tell you about the phenomenal journey of change that she has been through living with body dysmorphic disorder, a story she volunteered to share through the charity Mind. We're always very careful to speak to these guests who have suffered from mental health and make sure that they have a support system around them and they're willing to talk and they want to talk. And uh, we worked with Mind, the brilliant Mind charity, to find Denise and Denise kind of put herself forward to talk. So... It was really brilliant to be able to to find someone willing to talk about this very personal and very, very common disorder of body dysmorphia. So at the moment, we're all having to wear masks. But imagine what it would be like pre-COVID to never want to leave the house without a mask on. Body dysmorphic disorder is a serious mental health condition. Um, Surveys estimate around 2% of the population suffer from it, men and women. It's characterised by someone having a preoccupation with perceived defects or flaws in their physical appearance, which are unnoticeable to others. It may make it very difficult for people to go out in public or to see other people or to show their face at all. For Denise, her nose was her problem. And here she speaks openly about her thoughts and behaviours, even going so far as to have surgery to deal with her perceived problem about her nose. Last year, Denise's mental health deteriorated and she was sectioned, an experience which she talks about openly today. I'm pleased to say Denise has a really positive outlook and in her own words, doesn't want to hide anymore and wants to take a shot at life. A huge change for her and a really encouraging story for others. She tells us how she's done it and what continues to help her move forwards now. Before we start, it goes without saying this episode contains references that may be disturbing to some. If you have concerns, please check the show notes for more details. But until then, delighted to welcome to Changes, Denise. Denise, hello. Hello, Annie. How are you? Really well and really, really grateful to you for your time and your willingness to talk about your experiences today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. I really want to talk about mental health. It's important to me. Brilliant. Well, we're going to talk about change and and the the big changes that have affected your life. But let's start with childhood. And what, what were you like as a child? Well, as a small kid, my mother used to call me Smiler and that I would... I would fall down, I'd stand, I'd still be smiling. 
I was happy, I was playful. And well, I lost my mother to cancer, breast cancer at the age of 10. And after that, I changed completely. I became quite morose, quite um, into myself, very introverted. And um, it was just different. I went from having quite a happy childhood to my childhood ending and becoming sort of a mini adulthood, if you like. You know, mm. me and my sisters, we learned to take care of ourselves. And while my um, peers were just playing out and we were like doing our laundry, cooking for ourselves. And, and we learned very early on how life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. It can be very, very difficult and hard. How many sisters do you have and what's the, the kind of age situation? Well, I'm a middle child. My older sister is four years older than me and my younger sister is just a year and a half. So I was 10 when my mother died. My younger sister um, was eight right. and my older sister was 14. Right. And um, how did your father cope with, with all of this when it happened? What are your memories of him? I think he he found it well, obviously very, very difficult and he didn't know how to raise three girls by himself. He wasn't there for us the way he should have been. He was quite um, emotionally neglectful. Obviously, he was dealing with his own pain. He was dealing with his own grief. Mm. But there was a, the way we felt was that there was a resentment towards us that he had to raise three girls by himself. Mm. And so he, he chose to like be absent a lot of the time. He had girlfriends. He'd go and see. He'd leave us. And then we were just there by ourselves really and we learned how to look after ourselves without yeah. any we didn't we didn't have support we didn't have counseling we were just really we were supposed to just get on with it and we did to a degree but um that lack of grieving that lack of support caused a lot of problems when did you first start noticing that you had issues with your appearance can you remember what age you were when this started you started having these feelings I was probably about 14 going into year nine and um I began to get bullied by a group of girls they'll call me ugly like when I'd come into the room they'll make noise like oh look oh she's she's so ugly they'll come to my face and say it and I started to get well very very self-conscious I didn't like to look at myself. Um, I got fixated on my nose. I thought, oh, God, my nose is too big. They're, they're, they're looking at my nose. And I would come home, be staring in the mirror and um, just loathing myself, really. I got to a point where I didn't want to look at it. So I would sort of cover it with moisturizing cream and not rub the cream in. Right. So to me, when I was looking at myself, I couldn't see the areas that, I found so repulsive right. and so it, was, it would be like as soon as I got home mm-hmm. I'd cover my nose because my my reflection was so disgusting to me and caused me so much distress so it was like from that age from my teenage years it was just I couldn't stand my face. So this bullying that happened um, mm-hmm. did you get any help for it at the time? Did teachers notice? Did your sisters notice? Was anyone there for you to support you during this? 
my older sister, um, she would offer support. I told teachers and that they ended up saying that they didn't know who I was, which was complete rubbish because, of course, they knew who I was and it just wasn't taken further. They denied knowing me. But I was right. in a class with them in English. I was in a class with them in art. So, of yeah. course, they knew who I was. Yeah. But like it wasn't taken seriously. It was just like brushed aside. And I told my dad, um, and it was he. He would just say, "Tell your teacher," and so I did tell the teacher. So it was like nobody really helped. So I just had to deal with it. So that happened when you were about fourteen. How long were you in school after that? I stayed um, until A level. So it went on for about the bullying went on for about two years. Yeah. And then when we got into um, from GCSE to A level, they kind of just well stops they went I guess I don't know what maybe it's they'll they'll growing up a bit well they just got bored of ripping the piss out of me so they just that stops but I'm still in the same school but I the damage had been done so to speak so you would do you were coming home you're covering your nose what else was happening at that time in terms of your thoughts for yourself how how else were your thoughts manifesting what was there any other things that you were doing I was just very reclusive I was right. um tearful I was clearly quite depressed I wouldn't engage in life the way normal teenagers do like teenage your teenage years are a time when you're supposed to find who you are create mm. create your an identity and all of that but I didn't do that I was like I just isolated myself I stayed indoors um my whole teenage years I never went to a party I didn't date. I didn't go out. Um, I just did my work. I watched a lot of MTV, mm. sang a lot and read and wrote. That's all, that's all I did. So I was kind of, um, I had very few friends. I was a loner. I was sort of an observer. I'd watch other people like living their lives and not actually live mine, you know, because I yeah. thought I was too, first of all, ugly and too weird and just um, oddball to just mm. actually be accepted and actually participate in anything really and was there a point where in your teens you were aware that you had uh, an illness you were suffering from an illness did anyone help you understand that I went to see a doctor about depression I said to my dad I dad I think I'm depressed and like he was having none of it and he would be like stop saying this stop saying this just um you're you're a teenager a kid this is these are your your best years and he would just not hear it which was difficult so I I went to the GP they put me on antidepressants I wasn't having any um counseling or anything I was just taking I think it was um Prozac at that time I felt like this was normal me being this down like that's I didn't really know different yeah and how did the antidepressants affect you? How Did you feel different? Was life easier once you were on them? I would be more functional. Like in the weekends, I wouldn't just stay, spend the whole day in bed. I'd get up, but I wouldn't really do anything. Yeah. I would still be down. It wasn't a chemical imbalance in my brain. It was the way I was thinking. It was um, my right. thoughts about my appearance. There was It was a lot deeper than just taking a pill to pick me up. It helped a little bit, but I was generally still down. Down was like my default mood, yeah. if that makes sense. And were all of your thoughts 
focused on your nose all this time? Was it always based around that part of your body? Yeah, it was my nose. It was um, mostly my nose, but also my teeth. Um, I just, I thought I was gross, just all of me, but it was my nose the most that I found so awful. Like I would look in the mirror and I just feel sick. I remember like even not so long ago, waking up and wishing I'd not woken up because I couldn't stand looking in the mirror. So I'd spend more and more time in bed and just think, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm me. I have to look at myself and that would make me a mess, an emotional wreck, because I just found like, I've got another day I have to be this person that I can't stand. How did you cope when you felt that way about yourself? How did you cope leaving the house and kind of facing the outside world when you had to do that? I didn't really. I would I'd okay. go out, but I would just feel like everybody was looking at me, everyone was staring at me. I was still down. I was very cut off from people. I still had like, I would go to work and stuff but just be I wouldn't mix with my colleagues I'd do what I have to do and then go if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely so moving into your adulthood um things got more extreme to the point that you you wanted to physically change your appearance can you tell us how you reached that kind of conclusion of of taking action and wanting to change your appearance I'd had um years of just being unhappy and grossed up by my face that I thought I have to make a change I hadn't gone into the career that I wanted to go into because I thought I was too ugly I had to had abusive relationships because I thought I have to take anything if anyone will actually be with me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So basically this whole self-loathing got me into a place in my life where I hated the life I was living. And I I thought I'm not in the right career. I hate where I'm living. I hate these relationships, my friendships. I'm not seeing them as much as I would. They're not like everything is a mess. And I um, attributed that to my face. And so I thought, let me um, change it. So I'd saved the money for um, a couple of years. And I said, um, I'm going to change it. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a rhinoplasty. So I researched some doctors. I went abroad. That was a lot cheaper there. And I said, I want to change my nose. But I want to keep my ethnic features. I'm a black woman. So I, want, I don't want to erase my black features, but I don't want this nose because it it's ugly the surgeon was saying like yeah he he knew what he made me feel like he knew what I wanted yeah I felt yeah. confident going into it I did it and then when I saw it it was like a hundred times worse I didn't recognize the person in the mirror and I felt like I was much uglier than I was so I thought this is gonna actually change things and make me feel okay yeah but um it did the opposite and it's I, I've read with body dysmorphic disorder people that struggle with it are not really advised to go and have plastic surgery because the problem is not physical it's it's a mental and emotional problem so yeah. it all often exacerbates um, the yeah. problem yeah. which it did for me. Can I ask Denise um, what career was it that you wanted to go into? 
And what career had you found yourself in? I wanted to write. I have a journalism degree. I had internships that I would leave because I thought, oh God, the whole, the news desk, they're, they're looking at my nose. They're looking, they think I'm ugly. They think I'm too dumb to be here. They, I, I shouldn't be here. I can't be around people. Yeah. And so I didn't pursue it. I got the degree and I ended up going into um, care work or supporting people with um, learning disabilities, which was very, very far from what I wanted to do. I take my hat off to anybody who does it because it's a very difficult job. Mm. But um, it's also not a respected job. It's not a well-remunerated job. It was sort of, how do I put this? I was overqualified for it. I was doing that because I thought that's that's the only thing I'm worth. Does that make sense? It sounds yeah. really horrible, but I'm, it's not what I wanted to do, but I, end, I just ended up there. It was tough. It was it was a, just a tough job having to deal with feces, taking um, physical, a verbal abuse from. I know the clients were ill, but it was it was just a very tough tough job that I, if I'm honest with myself, I didn't want to do, but I felt like that's all I was worth. Yeah, I understand. So, you you had this surgery and you felt worse about yourself after the surgery can I ask did the surgery go as you had directed and wanted it to go no I feel like I don't know if I miscommunicated but what he did was nothing what like I wanted and what I had explained to him he was adamant that his work was great and he was like saying well um he doesn't understand why I'm not liking it and all of that and he was like well is so much better than your nose before. And he just really wasn't on the same page as me. It was, it was really, and I was there in another country by myself. It's terrifying, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And, um, God. I just felt really dumb for doing it. And I, I put myself in that situation. I just felt like, okay, this was supposed to make things better, but it, it's made it worse. And I've done it to myself. So it's like, Denise, you're an idiot, a complete and utter idiot. So what happened next then? You came back to the UK and how did you how did you feel for the next while? I felt like everybody was staring, everyone was looking at me. I I got deeper and deeper into um depression and I became housebound. I wouldn't go out. I would barely leave my room. I was seeing a therapist under the NHS. And I couldn't actually go to the hospital to see because I couldn't take the, the trip. So I started having um, sessions over the phone with her. Yeah. And I got really, really low and I wanted to end my life. I started to, um, to plan it. And I was just very, I was so depressed. That I just thought, you know what, I can't continue with this. It's... Um, how am I going to live a life if I can't actually go outside? And um, I said, I spoke, to, I said this to her on the phone and she ended up calling an ambulance and I wound up sectioned. Can I ask, were you still living at home with your sisters at that time or were you, had you moved out? No, I was, I'm, I've been living alone for a while, for a, for a long time. As soon as we could get out, we got out of our family home because it didn't feel like home to us after our mum passed. So 
you were sectioned. What are your memories of that time? It's very um, surreal. I felt like um, I didn't understand how I got there. I was. I remember sitting in a room. They put me in a room with just a mattress on the floor and just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to be seen by someone. God, that sounds awful. That sounds brutal. Yeah, it took about a day to actually for them to get make the decision because they have to go through um, two stages of the social worker and the hospital manager deciding that you're a problem to yourself and actually taking away your rights and putting you in hospital against your will. Yeah, yeah I remember I was very scared to go onto the ward. I was covering my face at the time also. Like when I went outside, I wouldn't allow anyone to see me. So I had a scarf around my face. And so when I went onto the ward, they were kind of like, well, what's, what's her problem with the, her with the scarf on her face? And just like I, I was even an outsider on the ward. On the ward, right. What treatment did you receive on the ward? And how long did you stay in the ward for? I was there for about um, eight weeks. Um, I was put on antidepressants. I saw the psychiatrist mm-hmm. on ward rounds, and I um, I saw the um, the psychologist. We'd have one to one sessions, mm-hmm. and as I got um, a bit better, like he would take me around the hospital grounds as like I'm sort of exposure therapy for right. me to be around people so you'd have the he'd have the scarf off your face and you'd be going outside with him um yeah but for a long time I wouldn't take it off it um it was just bit by bit first of all I would take it off and go into the canteen and be amongst the other patients yeah and then it'll be like walking into the grounds and but I was always just aware that people were looking at me or people looking at me people looking at me but I managed to do Mm. it Despite that, I was just really fearful of people seeing me. And did you find the psychologist helpful? He was very helpful, yeah, because he made me think differently. That, okay, maybe not everyone's looking at me. Maybe this is me in my head. It it allowed me to question my own thinking, which was very helpful. It made me consider that, okay, maybe... Maybe I my thinking is a bit warped. Even though when I look in the mirror, even now I still see something that is not normal. I'm like beginning to understand that like the nature of BDD is that you see a distorted version of yourself. Yeah. So when did you start learning about BDD, and when were you aware that that was something that you suffered from? When, uh, well, as soon as I was sectioned, Mm. they were, well, as soon as my first award round, that's what the psychiatrist said. But I'd been aware that I'd had a problem with my parents since the age of 14, since I started behaving that way. Um, But I didn't get the formal diagnosis until about 15 years later. So it'd gone on for a long, long time. And how was that getting that diagnosis, like like being able to... A kind of assign all of your behavior and all of your feelings to this label was that a relief or how, I mean how did it make you feel I felt there was relief in it but I felt like well why did it have to take this long for me to sure. actually 
get this diagnosis and get the appropriate treatment, the appropriate help. Yeah. Um, I felt a bit angry as well, angry at myself, angry that I'd wasted so much time in life, but also that, okay, I know that I'm, I've been ill. So like the decisions I've made have been the result of not being entirely well. Do you see what I'm saying? So it, yeah. it's given me some, okay, we all make mistakes. We all make wrong, difficult choices, but you've made some bad choices because you've had this obsession with your appearance that has really hindered you, has really stopped you from actually living life properly. Mm. It sounds like BDD, the, na- the nature of BDD, it sounds like really self-involved and really superficial, but it, it's, it's not really just about the appearance. It's, there's a lot of internal problems going on underneath it. And I think for me, it was complex grief with regard to my mother that I'd and the bullying and the lack of parenting that I kind of merged into this awful thing that I don't know why it materialized into that but for me it was all of those feelings that I I put on my nose which I don't know it sounds kind of strange like it doesn't make sense but I think as a child um when you have no help to process or find a direction for how you're feeling there's something very simple and and very logical about what happened to your feelings towards yourself I can see the path I can see why it would work out like that with no help or guidance or support around you to know how you're feeling to know how to deal with that yeah well I guess so but it's Ah, I don't know. It just, I don't know why it was my nose, why it was my face. Hmm. Tell me, um, when you left the psychiatric ward and you've been having these Mm -hmm. walks outside with your psychologist and and it feels like kind of making progress, how did you feel when you left? Did you want to leave? No, I didn't want to leave. Funnily enough, I felt safer in the psychiatric ward than I felt in the real world. It like the ward for me became like a bubble and like, okay, if I stay here, if I stay in my room, I'm protected. People, not many people see me. I can go out in the hospital grounds, but this is not real life. And it was like, I was scared of real life. Yeah. So when I came out of the ward, it was, I said, I either have, I can actually just become as I was, stay in my room and become um, housebound again, or... I can actually try and actually try to just go out and try to engage and actually do things. I'd go for walks bit by bit. Okay, I'm going to go on the bus today. I'm going to go into a shop today. I'm going to go to the gym today. Hmm. And so bit by bit, I built up the courage to do it. Even though I felt weird, even though I felt out of place, I've just stuck. It was like a habit. It's like the more you do it, the easier it becomes. I started to think about life in general and how, what is it, what does it actually mean to live life? What does it mean to live life well? And all of my adult life, I haven't been living life well. And so I started to research um, into philosophy and things and find ways of managing feelings basically through um, 
reading stoicism there's one idea like you have control over your thoughts and not outside events realize that and you find your strength right i started just, just to think about how how to how how to put that into practice like why do i why do i care so much about if people have called me ugly in the past if people look at me if people say nasty things why does it even matter where is my focus what does it mean what is actually important mm-hmm. in life and i i'd spent so much time being suicidal so i'd i'd be like what what does it actually mean to actually live and to live well ever since i've come out that's what i've been focused on and i've been focused on creating va- my own values what what is important to me mm. and that can be my um that's like my guide if you like so for the first time you've been thinking about yourself and what you want and what you need yeah. to be happy what 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 does it yeah what does it mean to live i've never actually felt like that yeah i've never actually felt like okay like life is something to be relished and to actually live yeah like it's always been something that i've hated that i've wanted to avoid that that's been hard that's been difficult that's made me feel like crap basically yeah. but now it it's like i feel like i'm going to actually try and actually use what i've experienced to actually create something there's a there's a quote by jean-paul sartre freedom is what you do with what's been done to you and right. i really love that so being sectioned and having that experience has sort of changed a lot of my mindset Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you came out, I mean, you've been out about a year now, am I right? Yeah. Did you have any support system from from like the 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 mental health services? Like, was there people still checking in on you and making sure you were okay? No, not really. I get a call every once in a while. I was referred to a specialist service for. treatment targeted towards BDD but due to covid that was put on hold so it's been mostly me um my reading and the gym 
that's helping mm. my recovery. So speaking of COVID, everyone now wears face mask. Um, <sighs> something which you've been trying to move on from from doing, from covering your face. How has that affected you? It's such a strange situation. I can imagine you found yourself it, it in. Strange. That's what I was doing last year. Yeah. Now I see it. Every time I see it, I'm reminded of that. But um, it's, it's, it's weird. It's funny. It weirdly brings a smile to my face when I see it because it's like I, was, I didn't want to show my face last year. And now I have to cover my face, Yeah. which is, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's irony. There's a lot of irony yeah. going on there. <laughs> <laughs> you have to yeah. laugh don't you <laughs> yeah you, yeah otherwise what do you do <laughs> yeah yeah so do you still have therapy do you still have someone that you talk to I'm still under um a mental health team Great. I am but um I would I don't really engage much with them they call me once in a while to check up on me mm. I'm on medication still and um, I probably will be on it for a long time but it helps me function yeah and it's it's okay I used to be a bit funny with medication like I didn't want to depend on a pill to prop me up but I may need it absolutely now that you're aware of the condition that you suffered from the BDD do you look at the world in a different way when it comes to how we live our lives you know, and by that, I mean the way that we have social media and the way that we all seem to be looking at ourselves all the time in photos and Instagram and all of that. Has it changed the way you've seen the way society works? To a huge degree. I don't even deal with Instagram anymore because I just think it's it's very toxic. I guess it depends on the way you use it, but there's this obsession with looks, with selfies, with appearing a certain way that is not helpful. It encourages people to compare themselves to others and it's that's not healthy. Mm. So I don't use social media and I feel like appearances are really, they don't matter. They don't, ma- I know they do to a degree because that's the first thing people see, but if you give it so much of your energy and your focus, it it's just unhealthy. I know everybody has body image problems, but it's not important. It's really, really not important. All your all your appearances, all your body is as a vessel for you to experience life through. So what you need to do is to have your values, focus on what matters. And that's different for, for everybody, but your appearance shouldn't be right up there i'm not saying don't value your appearance but i'm not i'm also saying don't give it so much emphasis Mm -hmm. what matters it your health matters what the people around you matter art matters what do you know what do you know what i mean it's it's we need to define we need to actually define our own values and just live that that's what i think anyway that's what this experience is how well has taught to me what brings you joy now in your life? What brings me joy? Um, that's a lovely question. Um, music, singing, yeah, going for a walk, weightlifting. When I lift a weight that I've not been able to lift prior, I get a, a buzz. Yeah. Like, okay, that's I've achieved something. Good friends, my sisters, good food. Yeah, 
beautiful art. It's the simple things. It sounds quite cheesy, but it's not. Life can be beautiful. There is so much beauty in life, and it's it's where your focus is. It's also interesting that you say the first three things you said are singing, walking, and weightlifting, which are all things that your body does. That yeah, you should marvel at what your body is capable of. Right. Not yeah. What it looks like. Yeah. 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 Denise, just to finish this conversation off, do do you think that there's enough support for people suffering at the moment when it comes to mental health? Not at all. Right. I th- I think it's very very. We're lucky to have the NHS, of course we are, but it's the mental health is not on par with physical health, and it should be because it's it's so important. Your mental health, your mindset shapes everything. And it shouldn't take people getting into crisis states for them to get the appropriate help. You know what I mean? There's a, the way it works is that, okay, when you, you show up at your GP, they'll put you into um, IAPT, which is improving access to psychological therapies, and you'll get CBT. And that's not appropriate for everybody. And, it's, and there's such a long waiting list. A lot of people give up before they even get the help that they need if mental health services were more responsive and were better I think a lot of people would be better off there'll be a lot less suicide attempts you know like people they could intervene mental health is not adequate yet and it needs to be the support we get my guest on the podcast last week was this woman called Alison Lapper and she was talking about how she felt like if there was some sort of hub in every town, like a safe space that didn't involve the law or the police or anything that could be construed as judgmental, where anyone could come when they feel vulnerable mentally and be assessed. She thought that could be a really good way of dealing with mental health, just to have like a public hub that people knew was dedicated 100% to mental health that was open to everyone. Do you think that could work? I think that would be great. Um, there are like spaces like mind, but there, there needs to be more of them, like maybe one set up by the NHS so people can go and actually have better access to the support that they need. I think it, is, it needs to go deeper that people need to be, well, children need to be taught yeah. about mental. I think when I was at school, I didn't, there was no mindfulness. I think they're teaching young kids that now. There was no... Um, talk about emotional intelligence that needs to be part of the curriculum that there needs to be more focus on mental health from a young age in order to like nip it in the bud like when they're young that's when it needs to be dealt with like me it took like over 15 years for me to get a diagnosis yeah it needed to happen quicker than that yeah. Part of it is my doing because, the, well, with BDD, there's a huge amount of shame attached to it. So you feel embarrassed and you don't often reveal the true nature of what you're feeling out of fear of judgment from other people. There needs to be some intervention earlier. Yeah. I think teaching and the curriculum is a really, you know, obvious place to start, isn't it? It's kind of making oh. people aware that you know because if you were taught in school that having certain feelings towards yourself meant that you were eligible for help and eligible for support then uh, yeah you, you would presume that you, you you might have reached out at that point 
Perhaps, yeah. So, Denise, we've talked about your changes. We've talked about your childhood change of the passing of your mother. We've talked about your adult change, about having surgery. The final question we always ask is about change moving forwards. And the question is kind of what would you most like to change either about yourself and and your life or looking outwards about the world around you in the future? It's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) What I would like to change about myself is being more open to life and experiences and actually engaging more, which I'm beginning to do. Um, With the world, what would I like to change in the world? The way mental health is managed, I would like more mental health awareness. I would like maybe social media to be kind of more regulated. And just, I would like just the beauty and the, the, how sacred life is to be more celebrated. I think philosophy needs to be on curriculums, especially stoicism and existentialism and the ideas of um, even Eastern philosophy as well, because they, they, they help. They really, 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 really do help. And it's important. Can you, for those who don't know, can you help simplify the stoicism philosophy? It's basically about ways to live well and ways to deal with negative emotion. The main principle is focusing on what is in your control and disregarding everything else. Mm. There's elements of mindfulness in there. I get how to, to, to sum it up is like to, to be in control of your, yourself and be in control of your states. That's how I would put it. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put a link to listeners to go and find out more about it on the show notes because I think that's a really interesting road to go down. And I think people will get a lot of help from reading about that. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. Oh, Denise, honestly, it was so useful and helpful to hear your story. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, I think so many people will, will get help from hearing about your journey. Um, and well, bloody done. <laughs> well done, <laughs> honestly. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm so happy that you're that you're in a, in a good, positive place. And I wish you all the joy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much to Denise for sharing her story, which I know she hopes will help anyone else struggling with body dysmorphic disorder. Maybe you recognize some behavioral patterns uh, in someone you know, around you, someone in your family, some friends. If you need any help, then go to Mind, which is the charity that helped us to set up this interview. It's a UK charity which provides advice and support to empower anyone experiencing mental health problems. If you need help, you can call them on this number 0300 123 3393 that's 0300 123 3393 or head to mind.org.uk and if you're listening to this abroad check the show notes for international helplines if you found this episode helpful and you would like to hear more on mental health if you haven't listened yet go and listen to last week's episode with Alison Lapper 
a celebrated artist who talks about living with a disability and the death of her son Paris following mental illness and addiction. I know loads of you found it really powerful. So I'm going to be back next week with the final episode of series three. And my guest is none other than the acclaimed actor, Michael Sheen. He's BAFTA winning, Golden Globe nominated, and uh, he has lots and lots to say about his childhood growing up in Wales, his ego, his acting journey, and he has brilliant things to say about change. So I'm really excited to bring that conversation to you. This episode was produced by Louise Mason for Rethink Audio. Take care and see you on Monday for the grand finale. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.